All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. We have a very special episode of Pod Save America today. Uh, Barack Obama's here. Oh, I thought you were going to say BTS. Yes, we know we just did an interview with Barack Obama. <laughs> I have BTS on the brain, John. Uh, that was really fun. That was like a throwback it was fun. 45 minutes. He has lots to say. He, he talked about sort of uh, his pitch to undecided voters, talked about Joe Biden Working with him, his foreign policy. Yeah, his character, his foreign policy. We talked about uh, what it's like to wake up and see the president of the United States tweeting that the attorney general should indict you, if that's weird. That, yeah. Stay tuned that for was, that. <laughs> that was an interesting answer. He talked a lot about uh, Fox News and the right-wing media infrastructure. Uh, yeah. We talked about what it's like governing with this kind of Republican Party and, and how Joe Biden can deal with this kind of Republican Party uh, if he is, in fact, elected. Yeah. So. And why you need to vote. By the way, I'm, I'm hoping we have some new listeners to this. So if you need any information about uh, where you need to vote, the issues on your ballot, a sample ballot, go to votesaveamerica.com. We got you covered. Figured I'd plug it, John. Why not? And Barack Obama reminded this, us of this at the end of the interview. Yeah. Go fill out your census because it was just a horrible Supreme Court decision where the uh, where they stopped counting the census. And Obama wants you all to fill out your census. So that's directly from him. Now you got to do it. Sorry. All right. Here is our interview with Barack Obama. On today's show, the 44th president of the United States, our former boss responsible for hiring the two of us, Barack Obama. Still, still questioning that decision. (laughs) Welcome back to the pod. It's good to be back. You guys look good. Thank you. We're trying. You too. You too. So, you know, I'm fairly confident that uh, Pod Save America listeners know who they're voting for at this point. But uh, we have about 300,000 volunteers who are phone banking, text banking every day. A lot of the polling shows that the people who are still deciding um, who to vote for and especially whether to vote at all tend to not have a college degree, tend to be younger. They tend to be voters of color. Um, This cycle, they tend to be younger black and Latino men specifically. 
These voters generally have a negative view of Trump, but they pay less attention to the news and are less likely to believe that voting will actually make a difference. What is your pitch to these voters? Well, let's take uh, some examples just from this year, right? Uh, mm -hmm. We know that uh, COVID-19 disproportionately affects uh, minorities. So those voters you just described, they've got a member of their family who may have been killed by COVID or disabled by COVID or laid off as a consequence of COVID. And whatever you think uh, about whether the federal government can help on big major issues like systemic racism, one thing we know is that uh, just basic competence can end up saving lives. And so uh, you know, one thing I would say to anybody who's skeptical about what government can do generally is to just take the example of when we were in office. You might not have been happy with everything I did, all my policy choices. I didn't you know, uh, eliminate poverty in America. But when we had a pandemic or the threat of pandemic, we had competent people in place who would deal with it. And that's an example of the kind of thing that government can do and we've seen it do. Uh, and, and that I think is important. Um, for those who are concerned about uh, the criminal justice system, as, as you guys know, I, I've talked about this a lot. Uh, I am hugely proud of the demonstrations and, and activism that young people have displayed. And a lot of those folks may be skeptical about what the government can do. Some of them may have been frustrated about uh, my failure to have completely transformed the uh, criminal justice system to, to eliminate racial bias. Part of that is because 90% of criminal sentencing typically is taking place at the state rather than the federal level. So the federal uh, government doesn't have power. But the truth of the matter is that when I, when I was in office, Eric Holder said to U.S. attorneys, uh, we're not going to judge you on getting the maximum sentence every single time. He changed the criteria so that the, the federal government in cases that were involving drug cases, for example, um, wasn't throwing the book at folks and trying to maximize the number of people going to prison. That may not eliminate mass incarceration, but it does change the lives of potentially thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, us initiating a consent decree in a place like Ferguson so that they can't make a move in terms of how their police department works without first clearing it with civil rights attorneys to make sure they're not reinforcing bias, that makes a difference. Uh, and you know, one of the things that I've been emphasizing is the degree to which it's not just the presidential uh, candidates that are on, on the ticket. You've got uh, district attorneys and state's attorneys who are gonna be responsible for whether or not uh, police misconduct is charged. Uh, and, and, and departments are held accountable. You've got mayor's races in which the mayor is going to decide who the police chief is and what the contract is with the police union. So on, on every issue that young people in particular care about, uh, let's, let's agree, let's stipulate 
that, yeah, the government's not going to solve every problem overnight. But you know what? It can make it better. And better means lives saved. Better means the air a little less polluted. You know, better means that maybe some people don't get charged for crimes that they shouldn't be charged for, and some people don't get shot, uh, and that's worth fighting for. And, and the idea that you'd give away your power because you're not getting 100% uh, when you could get 30%, 40%, 50% better, that doesn't make any sense. And, and, and that, I think, is, is the most important thing that I, 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 I focus on when I'm talking to young people in particular. Don't, don't, don't let the, the, the best be the enemy of the good in this situation. There are constraints in our system. Uh, even a, a well-meaning president can't solve everything, but they can make some things better. And just like the Affordable Care Act, you know, us getting 20 million people health insurance and, and locking in pre-existing conditions and everybody being under 26 being able to be on their parents' plan, you know, we still had millions of people without health insurance, but for those 20 million or those people with pre-existing conditions who had to try to get insurance, that was, that was a lifeline. That was a, a lifesaver. Yeah. And, and, and you, can spend, you can spend 15 minutes, half an hour voting to do that. Good. Uh, a quick plug. If you go to votesaveamerica.com, you can find your sample ballot. You can see all those down ballot races that are critical. If you're in California, you can see ballot initiatives. So check it out. Votesaveamerica.com. Shameless plug. Uh, Mr. President, so presidents have the most discretion uh, when it comes to foreign policy, but those issues rarely get a lot of attention during the campaign. Voters may have heard that you know Joe Biden supported uh, the war in Iraq back in the day, but not a lot else about him. You spent countless hours uh, with Vice President Biden talking about national security. What did you learn about how he thinks about diplomacy and counterterrorism and, and the use of military force that others would not have seen? Well, a couple of things. One, and I think this is most important, is when people ask me what surprised me most about uh, the presidency, you know, what I always tell them is I was, I understood but didn't fully appreciate the degree to which we kind of underwrite the international order. And True. <laughs> in the sense that even our enemies expect us to behave like adults on the international stage. You know, if there's a crisis somewhere, people don't call Moscow or Beijing, they call us and say, what, what are we gonna do to help? If there is a, uh, uh, ethnic cleansing, if there is a conflict, if there is a natural disaster. And the reason that we can serve in, in that role, even if we're not perfect, is that we have the infrastructure, we have experienced diplomats, we have you know, institutional traditions that allow us to show leadership on the international stage, whether it's in the Paris Peace Accords, whether it's on the Iran deal, you name it. Mm -hmm. And the thing that over the last four years, it's not as if Trump has been uh, all that active internationally. I mean, the truth is he doesn't have the patience and, and the, the, the focus to, to really substantially change a lot of U.S. foreign policy. What he's done is he's systematically tried to decimate our entire foreign policy infrastructure. And the thing I know about Joe is that he respects people who 
know history and have expertise and are going to, he's going to pay attention to somebody who has worked in Africa to, to find out, all right, like, how should I deal with a particular crisis there as opposed to calling it a bunch of, uh, I won't say the word countries. Um, right. You know, he, he has, he has a respect and understanding for what American leadership can do. And, you know, let's take the example of human rights, because uh, I've just been writing about this. Uh, any U.S. president, when, when I became president, one of the things I discovered coming into office is you're in charge of this big apparatus. You've got all these legacy systems. You've got the Pentagon. You've got the intelligence community. A bunch of choices have been made, some of which you don't necessarily agree with. It's an ocean liner and not a speedboat, so you tr trying to change policy uh, is really difficult, right? But even in, in, in those circumstances where you have to balance U.S. interests versus human rights interests, for us to go around and just talk about human rights, for me to meet with uh, a dictator, yes, I may have to deal with them because we've got other interests at stake, but for me to bring up in a meeting, you know what, you locking up journalists or mm -hmm. you uh, mistreating this uh, minority ethnic group is something that the United States objects to, that, that gives them pause. It, 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 in some cases, may tilt the balance in a way that you create more space for human rights activists or freedom of speech or environmental activism. And that's something I know Joe cares about. The other thing I think that's important, you mentioned Joe having, uh, you know, voted for the war in Iraq, he learned a lesson from that. And as you right, know, right. he was probably the person who was most restrained in terms of use of military force uh, among my senior advisors uh, during the course of my presidency. Uh, you know, yeah. he, he consistently believed that we should show restraint and humility and think through uh, the use of military power and had huge confidence and faith in the use of diplomacy as a strategy for, uh, you know, showing American leadership. And that instinct, I think, is going to trickle on, partly because he's going to have to rebuild a State Department that where some of the best people have been driven out systematically because they weren't willing to uh, tow uh, Trump's ideological uh, agenda. Right. So the two of you you know, became really close over the eight years that you served together. Do you have an anecdote about Joe Biden that most people don't know, tells a story about what kind of a person or leader he is? You know, I, I think the, the thing that I always, when I think about Joe, I always think about the fact that, and this is not a particular anecdote, this is more just day-to-day -day interactions. Um, he was always the guy in every meeting who asked, how's this helping regular folks? You know, the whole aspect of him about Scranton and, you know, getting on Amtrak and talking to the conductors and knowing their names and, you know, wanting to, you know, spend as much time as possible with voters and just hear about their lives. And 
identifying with the ordinary day-to-day struggles of the American people, that's not a shtick. You know, that's who he is. Now, that's part of the reason why he was always late, because if you got in a rope line with him, you know, I, I, I was pretty good about working the rope line. You know, this whole myth about me being aloof and stuff, you guys were there. Like, I loved hugging grandmas and kissing babies. Yeah. And I'd, I'd take my time in rope lines. And if he and I were campaigning, I, you know, I would have been really giving everybody a lot of attention. I'd, I'd be at the end of the rope line. I'd look back. He was a third of the way through, man. <laughs> He, he was still, you know, telling a story or listening to somebody. Um, and, and that heart is who he is. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of times when you're thinking about the presidency, uh, it's, it's great to, to look at policy and, and, you know, do they have, what were their 10 point plans on this or that or the other? But a lot of it is, what's their basic character, right? Are, are they people who instinctively uh, care about the underdog? Are they people who uh, are able to, to see the world through somebody else's eyes and stand in their shoes? Uh, are, are, they, are they people who are instinctively generous in spirit, right? And, and that is who Joe is. You know, and I've never seen him and you don't, you know, look, when you run for president, pretty much every, all your flaws are exposed. Uh, and once you're president, then they're really exposed. Um, <laughs> but you don't, you don't hear stories about Joe being just mean to somebody, right? You, you, no, no. People may no, never. fault him for other, for other stuff, but you, you don't hear Joe being disloyal to somebody or mistreating them or, you know, uh, being standoffish and, and pushing them away uh, when, you know, they were asking for help. And, and that is the thing in him that I think should give people a lot of confidence that along with the fact that he understands the importance of surrounding himself with people who are smart and uh, are, you know, believe in science and believe in expertise and believe in, uh, you know, institutional knowledge and experience. And, and so you get that combination. It means that, you know, his, his North Star will be good. But at the same time, he'll have a lot of people around him uh, who are able to translate his good instincts into actual policy that works. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A.
speaking of, of bad instincts, uh, President Trump keeps tweeting uh, that the attorney general should indict you or indict Vice President Biden for spying on his campaign. The allegation is absurd. It's false. It's seemingly part of just his general rage at any discussion of Russian interference in the 2016 campaign. It's it's remarkable to me uh, how used to this kind of language the DC has become, the press corps has become. Is it weird for you when he tweets that you should be indicted? Well, look, uh, uh, as you said, that this is something that even his uh, you know, his fellow Republicans tend to just pretend doesn't happen. Uh, yeah. And didn't read the tweet, General. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't read the tweet. And, you know, I kind of, of dodged reporters when they're asked about it. Um, the, the allegations are so absurd that even Republican controlled committees, you know, looking into it, have dismissed them. And, you know, uh, Attorney General Barr uh, has dismissed them. But, you know, this is uh, an example, I think, of a larger problem. Well, two two larger problems, uh, which don't get as much attention, understandably, when you've got high unemployment and a pandemic raging, because it doesn't touch people's day-to-day lives. But one of the central uh, uh, foundation stones of a democracy is the idea that you do not um, you do not allow the politicization of the criminal justice system, the intelligence system, the military. Right? That 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 mm-hmm. is stuff that you keep out of politics. Because it's too dangerous. Uh, You don't want, you can't have a democracy in which political opponents are uh, subject to this kind of inflammatory language. Now, he did this same thing with Hillary and and the the lock were up uh, theme. And so I'm not surprised by it, that it continues. I'm disappointed that Republicans who know better have not checked him on this. And I think a very important question uh, after the election, even if it goes well with Joe Biden, is uh, whether you start seeing the Republican Party uh, restore some sense of here are norms that we can't breach because he's breached all of them. And they have not said to him, this is too far. Uh, So that brings me then to the second issue. And that is the whole misinformation, social media, media infrastructure, the conservative media infrastructure. We've had this conversation before. Uh, That is a problem that is going to outlast Trump. Trump is a symptom of it and an accelerant to it. But he did not create it. We saw it when, you know, during my campaign back in 08. And yep. uh, we saw it, you know, you guys had to deal with it directly uh, during our administration. It has gotten turbocharged because of uh, social media and because the head of our government, our, our federal government, uh, and uh, has resorted to it. But... You know, when you look at 
insane conspiracy theories like QAnon seeping into uh, the mainstream of the Republican Party. Uh, what that tells you is that uh, there are no more guardrails within that media ecosystem. And, and I think one of the biggest challenges all of us have, this is not just a progressives versus you know, uh, right wing issue. This is really a genuine American society issue is, is how do we reestablish some baselines of truth that at least the vast majority of people can agree to. And then we can have a whole bunch of debates about, all right, yeah, climate change is real, but, you know, Republicans think, yeah, we just have to adapt because, you know, we can't give up, you know, uh, our, our you know, uh, cars and, and you know, progressives say, no, you know, we, we should use these alternative technologies. We can have that debate. Mm-hmm. And I have some pretty strong views about it. But right. if you say climate change is a hoax, then there's nothing we can do. You know, the same is true with COVID, right? You know, if, if you say, yes, COVID is a genuine, uh, you know, really big problem, uh, a serious disease. Here's the science. We can agree to that. And then, you know, you have a country like Sweden that decides, well, we think we're going to try to approach this through herd immunity. Mm-hmm. But at least there's some coherence to their argument. I disagree with it. I don't think it is proven out, but we're within the same reality in our debates. We're going to have to find ways to do that. I don't have a quick answer for that um, because part of what happens uh, within uh, when you get these echo chambers is it, they become impenetrable, right? A- any, uh, a- a- any, a bit of information that contradicts the worldview and the conspiracies within it uh, or the conspiracy theories within it, it gets rejected as part of the conspiracy and part of the liberal plot. Uh, but, I, but I do think that that's going to be a big challenge that we all have. Uh, and, and I'm concerned about that. Well, it, it goes to governing too. I mean, and you know this from your time in office, majority of voters want leaders who will bring the country together, try to work together in a bipartisan way. They also want leaders who will end the gridlock in Washington and actually get something done on the big issues. How do you govern in a way that's both bipartisan and productive when the only way to break the gridlock with this version of the Republican Party is through huge Democratic majorities, getting rid of the filibuster, other big structural reforms, all of which will be seen by Republicans and much of the media as extremely partisan? Well, look, as you know, this is exactly what we confronted with. And we had really big majorities. But because of the filibuster uh, and Mitch McConnell systematically wanting to throw sand into the gears, uh, no matter how much outreach we made, as long as they Republicans could maintain unity. And McConnell was very explicit about this. He said, look, here's one thing I've learned is as long as we can. Uh, keep Republicans off Obama's bills, even when it's their their proposals that used to be Republican proposals. Um, then we can rob them of the veneer of bipartisanship, uh, and uh, that polarization plays to our advantage. Right? I mean, he was very systematic and strategic about that. 
what I have concluded is, is that the answer is to uh, change some of these structural uh, impediments to just getting stuff done. Uh, I mentioned it at uh, John Lewis's uh, funeral, uh, my belief that I think we should test it. I think we should give Republicans a chance to work with us around reasonable issues. I don't think we should be maximalist uh, and ask for 100% of what we want all the time. But I think that if you continue to see uh, the kind of systematic rejection of even reasonable compromise, there, there comes a point at which you just have to change how the system works. The filibuster would be one. I would argue that around voting, uh, us going ahead and just making it easier for people to vote, making it harder to suppress the vote is uh, not partisan. It is an expression of our democracy. It will be uh, portrayed as partisan, but that's an argument I think we have to welcome. I, I think we have to go ahead and have that argument. Look, if, if you have one major party, perhaps the only major party that I know of in any advanced democracy in the world, who explicitly says we're trying to keep fellow citizens, certain fellow citizens from voting, and we're trying to make it as hard on them as possible. You, you, even the far right in Europe does not say that. They don't say, right. you know, let's stop other, you know, uh, Austrians from voting or let's stop other Germans from voting. It, 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 this is unique to us and it's a legacy of, uh, you know, uh, racial discrimination and, and, and gender discrimination and, and was embedded in our initial constitution and, and, and had to be fixed through a, a series of amendments. And, and so I, I, I think that we should welcome the argument that making it easier for people to vote uh, and eliminating the last vestiges of Jim Crow and poll taxes and all that stuff um, is not a partisan issue. Uh, and, and anyone who argues against that is behaving in a partisan fashion. And I think we can win that argument with the majority of the American people. Yeah, I mean, so your last answer sort of gets at this ongoing four years later, you know, debate about whether Trump is an aberration or whether he is sort of the next phase of a Republican party that has been built on racial grievance and built on cruelty to immigrants and Fox News conspiracy theories. And it's a bit of an esoteric like Washington debate, but the answer also shapes how Joe Biden or any Democrat should approach the job because, you know, we all hoped that the Republican fever would break after the 2012 reelect and, and clearly it didn't. Things have gotten worse. Do you have a view on this sort of debate about whether Trump is, is an aberration? Uh, you know what? Here, here, here's, here's the way I, I think about it. I, I would distinguish between um, people who vote Republican and the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. and yep. the, the Republican media infrastructure. And, and what I mean by that is this, and you guys have heard me say this before. Um, you know, when I, when I was elected to the U.S. Senate, uh, I got about 70% of the vote in Illinois. I got the majority of the vote in Southern Illinois, which mm -hmm. is much closer culturally to 
Kentucky or Southern Indiana yeah. or Southern Ohio than it is Chicago. Um, and it did well in a bunch of white evangelical counties, rural counties, that I think is fair to say, there's no way right now that I could get those votes, right? If I went back to those same places. And the reason is because they see me only through the filter of Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, Lord knows what's going on in Facebook, et cetera, right? But when you got those folks one-on-one and they had a chance to meet you and talk to you and you were at a veterans, you know, a, a, a VA you know, a hospital or, or a, a fish fry, you could have a conversation with them. They might disagree with you on a whole bunch of stuff, but they thought, you know what? He, he seems like a, a, an okay guy. I'm not scared of him, even right. if I disagree with him. And those folks right now are just being fed what's coming through that filter. I do not think that that is inevitable. I think if, if, if they were watching Walter Cronkite or they were reading the, what used to be the local paper that was put out by, you know, some uh, uh, cranky conservative guy with a bow tie and, you know, uh, you know, wire rim glasses who, yeah, and a buzz cut, you know, but was like a, a, a learned guy who, who, you know, was right. kind of serious, but was sort of conservative. If that's where they were getting their information from, I think it'd be, then you could, in fact, have just the normal debates between a more conservative and a more liberal America. And, and uh, in, in that circumstance, democracy works. So, so the answer, I guess, Tommy, is I think that Trump is expressing uh, or, or, or mirroring and in some ways explicitly exploited and took on the crazy that was being pumped out through these venues each and every day. Right. And if that stuff is still being pumped out and Trump goes away, someone else will uh, meet that market demand. But on the other hand, do I think that that is inevitably who, the, what the Republican Party has to be? No, I, I, I don't think it does. It, it was fascinating as I was writing the book, I was just looking through some of the old stuff uh, about, uh, Tr Trump was really complimentary of me for like the first two years. So like, yeah, yeah, liked you know, Obama seemed like doing a great job. You know, uh, think, you know, uh, and, and essentially what happened, because the guy just decided he wanted attention, right? Whether it was to promote Celebrity Apprentice or whatever, he, he sort of, he looked and saw what was being fed and he said, oh, if that's, if, if that's what folks want, I can do that with even less inhibition, mm -hmm. right? So with, with even less of, of a, I, I don't need a dog whistle. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, right. and, and I'll yep. just, you know, and that's how the whole birtherism, uh, you know, shtick uh, came about. Um, it, it, our country has always had this battle, right, between these darker impulses to exclude, to uh, dominate, to, to uh, rig the game in favor of certain folks and not others. And then uh, the other side of it has been to expand and, and embrace uh, the, the dignity and, and uh, inherent worth of every individual, uh, regardless of 
you know, what they look like or, or, or where they come from. And, and that tug of war is always going to be there. And, and, and we as Democrats have to remind ourselves that for much of the 20th century, the Democrats were as bad or worse, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The South was Democratic. Dixiecrats right. were the ones who were running filibusters to prevent anti-lynching legislation, et cetera. Uh, and Lincoln was a Republican. So, right. so, so the issue has less to do with, is, is one party or the other inevitably like this, one way or the other? It has much more to do with uh, this ongoing tug of war between our, the better angels of our nature and, and uh, uh, our, our worst impulses. And, uh, and, and I, I have confidence that we can, we can get back to a point where both parties uh, have in it those better angels. Uh, but I, I do think that we're going to have to figure out how to get to voters. What are the workarounds to, to just penetrate the, the 24-7 um, uh, narrative that is being pumped out by uh, folks like uh, Fox News and others. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. So last question, we'll let you go. So most of our listeners are happily working very hard to elect Joe Biden, even though they supported, you know, more progressive candidates in the primary. What's your advice to those people who want to see not only a more progressive Democratic Party, but more progressive policies enacted in Washington. You were on both sides of this. You were an organizer. You were president. So you've sort of seen it from both sides. Look, I, I, I think that number one, win first, right? So, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think everybody's kind of moved into that mindset. Uh, you, you know, we, we, we <laughs> let's get through the next three weeks and then the next three months, and then let's figure out. Uh, what our internal debates are going to be. So that's point number one. Point number two is that I think it is very important for progressives to continue to uh, press their agenda because there are going to be other forces that are pressing uh, on the White House uh, from the other direction. And that's that's always the case. That's always true. Um, and there's nothing wrong with making noise about it. And there's nothing wrong with uh, holding folks to account. I, I, I think the, 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 the caution I always have for progressives is making sure that as you push for the most you can get, 
then at a certain point you say, all right, you know what, let's get this done and then let's then move on to fight another day. And, and healthcare always being the best example of this. Uh, as you will recall, we wanted a public option in the Affordable Care Act. We pushed, I needed 60 votes to get it through the Senate. Joe Lieberman, Ben Nelson, and a couple others said, I'm not voting for something with a public option. At that point, then a progressives have to be able to say, okay, let's take what we can get now and then let's build. And every bit of progressive uh, uh, legislation, all of our progress throughout our history typically happens in stages, right? You, you get a beachhead like social security passes, but it excludes all kinds of folks, right? Domestic workers and agricultural workers because Southern uh, you know, voters or Southern uh, congressmen didn't wanna have black folks uh, be able to get social security because then they wouldn't be a subject you know, to the, the whims of, of white employers. And should we should FDR not have passed Social Security? Of course not. He gets it done, and then you fight that next battle, which is to include more people. Um, Dodd Frank, we passed Dodd Frank. Did we eliminate greed and malfeasance in Wall Street entirely? No. What we did was we put in a bunch of guardrails to make it less likely that you end up having bailouts in the future. Part of the reason that we haven't seen the financial system teeter during uh, this major economic shock uh, was because of those guardrails that we put in place. But yet we still have to move on a whole bunch of other stuff that we weren't able to get done at the time. And, and I think understanding that that is not a failure, uh, but that is just the process you push you consolidate, you push some more, you consolidate. And, and also to understand, and, and this maybe is, is um, where sometimes I differ with Bernie and even Elizabeth in, 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 our, uh, in how we talk about this stuff publicly. Most of the time when I didn't get something progressive done while I was president, it wasn't because uh, I was getting donations from some special interest or corporation. It wasn't because, you know, there were a bunch of lobbyists whispering in my ear. It was because I didn't, I, I didn't have votes. And I, I, I think sometimes we, we uh, attribute the failure of a democratic or pro, uh, uh, progressive president uh, not getting something done to somehow he, uh, he, and hopefully at some point she, is being influenced by these other folks, when in fact, it's just that we don't yet have the votes and the clout. So progressives, you, if you want progressive legislation, get out there and keep working after the president is elected. It, I don't wanna put the cart before the horse, but you guys know how frustrated I would be when progressives, feeling frustrated, would then sit out the midterms. Now I have fewer Democratic votes. Now I've lost the House. Now I've lost the Senate. That is not the right reaction, right? That, 
the, we get more progressive legislation done, the more Democrats we have in Congress, the more Democratic turnout happens. Uh, and, and again, I, 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 I don't want to lose track of this uh, because right now we just have what's right in front of us. But as soon if we are fortunate enough that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are elected, we maintain the House and hopefully we regain the Senate. The one of the very first things we have to do is to get every person who was as fired up as they were about this election to understand the midterms are going to matter just as much. Yep. Because that's the that's the constraint ultimately that. Uh, you know, we all confronted uh, throughout this process was when I look back on my presidency, the, 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 the real envelope, to, the limit to what I could get done had to do with how many votes did I have in the House? How many votes did I have in the Senate? Obviously, if there are modifications to the filibuster, that makes it easier. But, um, but even within the Democratic Party, there, we have to accommodate for the fact that there are going to be some regional differences. Uh, and that's okay. That's part of the big tent and that's part of the process that we move forward. Democracy is an everyday struggle. That's what you always taught me. That's it, man. It's (laughs) it's a a garden you have to nurture. This thing's not self-executing. Speaking of which, I'm assuming you guys are plugging the fact that we had a Supreme Court ruling around the census that was adverse to us. The Trump administration is purposely trying, uh, has decided to cut off uh, the census earlier than it should have been. If anything, it should have been extended because of COVID. Um, but it is what it is. I hope you guys are plugging uh, the need for everybody who has not responded to the census uh, to get your information in there. That's part of this structural set of issues. Census determines how much representation communities get. Um, a lot of decisions are made based on those numbers, and uh, we've got to make sure that everybody's counted. Easy to do, quick to do, no excuse not to do it. That's it. Important. Uh, President Barack Obama, thank you so much for coming back to Pod Save America, and uh, good luck out there on the campaign trail. Great hanging out with you guys as always, man. Appreciate you. Thank you. Take care. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitrio, Quinn Lewis, Brian Semmel, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. Into our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. 